Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the parable of the sower. And we'll be spending uh, two weeks on this section of Luke, with this week explaining uh, the meaning of the parable as explained by Jesus, and then next time with Jesus' explanation for why he spoke in parables like this one in the first place. Well, again, we are in Luke chapter 8. We are going to pick it up with verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root, they believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go ahead again to him. Heavenly Father, it is an old and ancient story, but it is the best story ever told about how you have shown tremendous love and care and kindness to your creation, particularly to your image bearers who you made to be in communion with you. And it is through the love of Christ, through his atoning life and death for us and our salvation that we enjoy that love. And it is through his word that we have come to know you and to be able to read all things in light of him, knowing you. And to that end, we pray that he would be among us through his spirit this morning, that we might learn from him, that we might grow in him, that we might learn to walk in his ways and evaluate every last thing in our lives by him. Lord, we want to be wise. We want to grow into maturity because that is the promise you have given. And in many ways, it is our birthright through him. <coughs> So we pray all of this through him in the power of that same spirit. Amen. Well, as we saw last week, Jesus accompanied by the 12 apostles, the, the apostles, of course, set apart as his official witnesses, as well as uh, with some noted women, namely Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna, women who uh, certainly supported and enabled Jesus' work, both financially and we can assume just by their, their volunteerism and what they did in keeping that, that mission afloat. And I think it's safe to assume at this point, too, that the 72 disciples that we will see later 
and Luke sent out for ministry were most likely following Jesus too, as well as more disciples who were women that are not named here. So it's a, a fairly large crowd at this point. And so with this group, Jesus is going throughout Galilee proclaiming and bringing the kingdom to bear. And as we talked about last week, Luke points out those two things separately. And that meant that Jesus was both proclaiming that the kingdom of God had arrived in him. That is, it was a word preached about this. And he actually demonstrated that it was happening in real time as evidenced by, say, his healings or casting out demons and forgiving sins, which in turn gave real liberty from sin and oppression in this real world, just as it does for us today. Well, in that small, ragtag community centered on Jesus, the promised city of God of Isaiah 60, Zion itself had already shown up in the world. They were already a city on a hill, a light shining in the darkness, though obviously not yet fully. And it's in the midst of this work and the ever-growing uh, crowds coming to hear and see him, that Jesus tells this parable with the familiar tagline, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as we'll talk about in far more depth next time, Jesus uh, is purposely referencing the prophet Isaiah in his prophetic ministry to an Israel that had ears but refused to hear. That is, even though they had the word of God, they refused to listen to it. And really, the parable of the sower, I think, is in response or perhaps uh, is an explanation to the growing problem of people failing to respond to Jesus' ministry. Now, clearly some had. That's the people following him. But many had not. So if Jesus is the promised Messiah, the very word of God come in the flesh, and God's own son, and with him, the inbreaking of new creation, the kingdom of God has shown up, why aren't more people responding to him? Why are groups like the Pharisees and the scribes, groups that should have recognized the Messiah and flocked to him, why are they instead rejecting him? Well, Jesus cites Isaiah 6 to explain why that is and then explains the meaning of the parable itself. Now, again, next time we'll take up Jesus' quoting of Isaiah 6. But in the meantime, let's just go ahead and get to the meaning of the parable itself. The parable of the sower, as you look at it kind of as a whole, is, is, is about a farmer or really a sower intending to grow a crop. And as he sows his seed, that is, as he spreads it, Around some of the seed fell among, along a path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some of the seed fell on the rock, but as it grew, it withered because of a lack of moisture. Some of the seed fell among thorns, and the thorns choked it out. And then some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold crop. Now, it's an interesting picture considering that most farmers... Uh, that I know anyway, don't just throw their seeds haphazardly or randomly or even far and wide. No, smart farmers are like snipers, and they, they aim for very specific conditions where the likelihood of getting a yield is the greatest. So already there is a, a certain, how to put it, recklessness almost to this parable. This farmer will throw his seed far and wide in the hopes of finding a crop wherever he might find it. But at the same time, if we understand Jesus as the sower, and we should, and Israel as the place where he was throwing or spreading out his, his seed, 
This parable tells, tells us how unsuitable Israel was for the, the word of God at this time. They had ears, but they could not hear. Even so, the crop itself, when it does arrive, is highly unusual. So instead of a, a tenfold yield, which by all accounts would be a marvelous crop, a marvelous yield, this crop brings forth a hundredfold yield, which is ridiculous, if not miraculous. So if my math is right, and I'm not sure it is, but if my math is right, it would be like investing $10 and getting $1,000 in return. So in other words, God takes a small amount and he multiplies it beyond belief. Now the obvious question is, what is the seed then that provides this, this huge return? And Jesus tells us in verse 11 that the seed is the word of God. And so it is through his preaching, his word, that God would produce a crazy, unimaginable yield. And that crop, as we've already seen, is the kingdom of of God and it is made up of his disciples who listen to his word and do what he says and in turn learn to make right evaluations by his word. That is, they grow into a people of maturity, into a people of wisdom. And it's similar to the parable that Jesus uh, tells in Luke 13 that we will get to, I don't know, in a matter of a month or so. He says, what is the kingdom of God like and what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Okay, so the kingdom of God grows from a tiny beginning that Jesus plants in Israel. Israel was often described as God's garden, or his vineyard, or his fig tree. And here we see Jesus planting this seed in Galilee with these people. And from that, that tiny beginning came a tree so large, and it's, it's reminiscent of the tree of, of Daniel 4, that was a symbol of, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the Babylonian Empire, who was a shade and a shelter through God's provision for the whole world at that time. Well, that this tree, this kingdom, extended into the heavens and the birds of the air would, would find a home there. So in other words, this kingdom would cover the heavens and the earth. And the creatures of both realms, the angelic beings and the beings of this material world, that is us, and all the animal kingdom would be ruled by him and in turn have life in him. So initially, this parable is meant to teach that through the kingdom of, that though the kingdom of God was, was clearly humble at this point, no one simply based on appearances, I mean, would take that, that claim that this was the promised city of Isaiah 60, right? That's that humble. Well, even so, from this small, humble seed, the kingdom would grow to an unbelievable, miraculous size. And considering Jesus describes Israel in terms of a path, a rock, thorns, but also good soil, it is telling that this incredible yield would not come from say, Israel as a whole. So the disciples should not expect a revolution, right, with all of Israel flocking to Jesus in Jerusalem. But rather, the growth would come from a very small section within Israel. And so the disciples can expect, at least initially, to be a very small minority. Now, we, of course, are part of this huge yield today. American Christians often lose sight of that. 
that there are actually billions with a B of, of Christians in the world, and we are part of that hundredfold yield that began as the tiny seed planted by Jesus through his word, through his preaching that first began to grow in this initial small yield of disciples. And by the way, some Christians assume we're at the end of that yield. There's nothing in Scripture that says we're at the end of it. We may be in the middle. We may actually be in the early stages of that kingdom. But again, the picture is of a farmer who, instead of eyeing things up with precision like a sniper, choosing his soil very carefully, rather instead throws his seed everywhere that is all over Israel, which is what Jesus has been initially doing, at least in Galilee. In practical terms, that means that Jesus did not reserve his preaching for those he knew would believe. No, he preached to the crowds at large, and within those crowds, there were four different categories of responses to his preaching. In verse 12, Jesus says, The ones along the path are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the picture Jesus gives of his seed here, that is his word, falling on a well-worn path where it gets trampled by foot traffic and the birds of the air, or as he says in verse 12, the devil uh, comes and takes the word away from their hearts. So this, of course, is a description of what happened with, say, Judas. But you can already see it at work with the Pharisees and scribes to this point who listened to Jesus. And I would be willing to bet that they probably listened far more carefully than the crowds at large because they were the ones most invested in the word of God. The scribes, after all, were the scholars. They knew the biblical text far better than anyone else. And the Pharisees certainly were very familiar with the rabbinical tradition and tried to live by it but they refuse to believe. We've already seen this happen with Simon the Pharisee, who was clearly curious about Jesus at the very least. And he certainly showed him a tremendous amount of respect, going so far as to invite him into his home for a Sabbath meal, but who ultimately rejected Jesus. Remember, this man is no prophet, he thought, because of Jesus' treatment of the notorious woman who anointed his feet. And we talked about that uh, two weeks ago. So the issue is not whether someone had heard Jesus or not. If we take the scribes and Pharisees as an example of the path, which I think is appropriate, it's rather that the person might very well have listened carefully and said, no thank you. After all, the word was near their heart. Jesus, think about that. Jesus was reclining at table with Simon when it was snatched away by the devil, as it was with Judas. Now, in verse 13, Jesus explains that the seed that fell upon the rock are people who receive the word initially with joy. But because they have no roots, because there's no moisture to grow them up, they believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. Now, as a former youth and college pastor, it's been a while now, but as a former one of those, this response, along with, I think, the next one we're going to look at, uh, are the two most common ways I've witnessed people fall away over the last 30 years. So, for example, and I, and I know I've used this example before, growing up uh, in the 80s and 90s, I thought the two greatest threats 
to Christianity, the things that would cause people to fall away were atheism and evolutionary theory. In other words, two intellectual threats. And while I think that might have been true uh, for a certain set of people in older generations, uh, for my generation, that is Gen X, and those younger than me, those weren't really issues that caused people to fall away from God, though I am sure uh, there were some where that, that was the case. More often than not, and this was my experience working with young people from the late 90s to the present, even when I was a young person, more often than not, these were the people who, who went to, say, youth group or went on a mission trip or, as is common, uh, this, this time of year, they went on a summer retreat and they perhaps rededicated their lives to God or they got baptized for the second or third time or they raised their, head, their hand with their head bowed and their eyes closed to accept Jesus and it's for real this time. And they were turned home with, with real joy and, and real zeal for God that soon ebbed away as the normalcy of everyday life always returns to us. And while they had an experience of God, and often it was, it was very emotional in a mountaintop type experience, which, by the way, there is a place for that. When they returned home, they were often not rooted in a church alongside mature and older Christians who were dedicated to helping them and teaching them and grow in the faith. So young people do not grow in their faith because of other young people who are at the same place in life. It's why you don't have 15-year-olds teach calculus to other 15-year-olds. You just don't do that. No, they grow because of older, wiser people who come alongside them and build into them. And as an aside, you know, pastors, which I was one, and youth leaders and worship leaders, which again, I was one of those two, often feel tremendous pressure to create or recreate these emotional experiences and in turn, in these heightened moments, push young people to decide right now for Christ. And often, and I know this because I've been part of these sorts of things, both on the receiving end and the one who's trying to lead people to these experiences, there's a kind of bait and switch aspect to some of these events. And the reality is, it's, it's simply not that difficult. It's really not that difficult to create an emotional experience. I mean, John Williams, the music composer, he does it to me every single time. So, for example, at the end of the most recent Indiana Jones movie, I teared up. Why? John Williams. He knows how to hit my heartstrings with those string sections and the brass of those, those scores every single time. But then I walk out of the theater and what? It's back to life as normal. You see, youth groups and Christian camps and campus groups and ministries, they love to be able to quote numbers of who came uh, to Christ or rededicate their lives to Christ or how many people showed up. And on the one hand, it makes them feel as though they have accomplished something. And that is certainly how I used to feel about it. But on the other hand, they feel they have to do this because they need to have those numbers so that people will continue to support their work. It's really justification for their existence. And American Christians simply don't believe in the slow, patient work of the gospel that produces small returns 
over a long period of time. We expect a big return on investment almost immediately. And the bigger the so-called response, you know, this many people rededicated their lives to Christ tonight, the more we believe that God is at work. And you know what? Sometimes he is. Sometimes he's not. And so imagine this person who went on the retreat or the camp or, or what have you, and let's imagine she graduates from school. And for some, you know, these issues start way earlier than graduation, but let's, let's just say she's graduated and she starts encountering people at college or the workplace or whatever it may be who are fun and they are free and a lot less constrained from whatever Christian experiences she's had and, and that joy and excitement that she initially felt at youth group, it's long since passed. And, and perhaps she makes a new group of friends that, that gives her an experience of joy and freedom and fun. And in turn, she meets someone and she falls in love. And considering just how few good guys there are out there, maybe she's happy to have found this one and puts everything into him. And while that young man may be nice or even kind or come from a well-off family and be maybe more than a little cute, he does not belong to Jesus. So he does not share in any of the fundamental commitments that she claimed to have. And when push comes to shove, when choices must be made, she chooses her desire for affirmation and love and companionship over the God she raised her hand for, and she falls away. And it wasn't that hard of a choice. Despite her initial joy, despite maybe having a collection of Christian experiences that she can point to, in reality, like the seed in the rock, she was rootless and grounded in nothing. And the allure of, of romance and sex are far more intoxicating than atheism and evolutionary theory could ever have hoped to be. Desire trumps intellect every single time. And I can think of no less than 10 people. I did this exercise over this week. I can think of no less than 10 people, both male and female alike, and it's, it's actually way more than 10. I just can't remember their names, though I remember their faces. That I've personally ministered to, that have heard the clear preaching of the word, not just in sermons, but in small groups and one-on-one -on -one settings who had initially received Jesus with joy, but chose their desire, most often the desire for sex and affirmation, over God himself. And in my experience, this is the most common way people in Christian settings fall away from God, far more than anything else. And some of those kids who are now in their 30s have done a complete 180 and now go so far as to say, they think God is immoral. So the testing, and as we will see in Jesus' next example, the testing could be anything. It could be anything. The testing often takes the shape of, do you think the life God has offered you in himself, think about the early part of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you endure real hardship for my name's sake. Do you think the life God has offered you in himself is better than you acting on your sinful desires and getting what you want right now? And they think, you know what? I just want to be happy. Boy, is that a line for our times. I just want to be happy. And I think this other thing will do it for me. And so what takes root in their life is not God himself, but this other thing. 
Well, in verse 14, Jesus describes the seed that fell among the thorns as those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So this is similar to the seed that fell among the rock, only this seed does produce what appears to be uh, some fruit, but the fruit does not mature. And so while this initially sounds better uh, than the path and the rock, the promise of God is that he will bring his people into maturity, uh, otherwise known as sanctification. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, right? So if you are in union with Christ, Christ through the Spirit will grow fruit in you. So what initially looks like fruit among the thorns is no fruit at all. And in our circles, it's, it's what we might, might say is the Christian-ish life. Right, the Christian-ish life. And notice what chokes out the fruit. It's the cares of the world. That is, things like our jobs or our children. It's riches, which none of us want to hear or want to say that we're rich. Uh, but in comparison to the rest of the world, let alone all of history, we are fabulously wealthy. And then the third thing, the pleasures of this life, which, by the way, God created us to experience pleasure. So Jesus is not saying the cares of this life or riches or pleasure are inherently sinful or bad. He's not saying that. It's rather how we treat such things or how we value them that is at issue. It's, it's what our disposition to them that, that chokes out God. So, for example, it's fairly routine for pastors to express frustration over why their people don't prioritize the body of Christ, the church you know, as a non-negotiable in their life. If you were to go to General Assembly, you will hear clusters of pastors bemoaning this all the time uh, in, that, in that, that gathering. And the idea is as in, like, why, why will Christians, for example, take the sixth commandment, do not commit murder, pretty seriously, but why not the fourth commandment on the Sabbath? So if the church is where God chooses to gather with his people together where he has given the means of grace, of word, sacrament, prayer, the very things we see Jesus institute and doing with his disciples and the very same means he built his church in the book of Acts and has been using consistently for 2,000 years to build, I don't know, a billion Christians, more than that, then why do some Christians just take these things so lightly? Should pastors then maybe come up with new and better programs to entice their people to come and be involved? Should we be stepping up the entertainment value to our worship services? You know, maybe we could uh, turn that little sitting area here. That we don't use it very much. That little sitting area off this hallway, off to the left of the, the, the doors there. Maybe we could turn that into a, I don't know, what do you think? Maybe a small dog park, right? And maybe every fourth or sixth Sunday, we could have uh, bring your furry friend to church Sunday. You know, it, that would be pretty fun, right? People love dogs. Maybe they'll... And it winds up being the youth group problem or the camp retreat problem all over again. So if the gathering for word, sacrament, and prayer together with the triune God is not enough to attract... You know, a, a Christian to God, a new program, or say a laser light show, or, or a dog park, they won't do it either. And if you do win them with those things, well, you haven't won the person to Christ. You've won them to a dog park. And in my experience, when I ask people directly about this issue, and I sometimes do, 
you know, they never say, you know what, I just don't care about God. Don't care about his people either, man. It's almost always a justification for why this other thing was more important or more relevant or took precedence over God. And what inevitably happens is that the person, and often their children are the ones who suffer the most for this. They are disciples informed by that other thing instead of God himself. And thus, they never actually bear fruit, though they do look awfully Christian-ish. Now, the good soil, and this is the first time soil is actually mentioned in this farming parable, is the one who hears the word, holds it fast in an honest and good heart, and bears fruit with patience. That's what Jesus says. So this is like what both Paul and James say in a variety of ways. It is the person who believes the word of God, accepting the life that is offered in Jesus Christ, and in turn commits his life to him. So it's like the woman from two weeks ago in Luke 7 who believed that her sins were actually forgiven and in turn worshiped Jesus with gratitude and at great cost to herself. And if you want more specifics on what, that, what Jesus is describing here, just go back to the Sermon on the Plains of Luke chapter 6 or the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5 through 7 where Jesus goes into some detail on what seed falling on good soil looks like. Even so, when Jesus says an honest and good heart, he does not mean that the person was already good, and thus the seed easily took root. There is no one who is good all on their own, no one. And no, this, this person is one who listens to the word and repents. That means they were not right. It means they must turn to Jesus with some measure of an honest recognition of, of sin and, and the need for forgiveness, and in turn, God, through his spirit, works in that person's heart and mind to produce good fruit. That's Paul's point in Galatians 5. It's why fruit in the disciple of Christ is always a work of the spirit. Now, the temptation as we read through this parable, and I think we're invited to, to meditate on this and put ourselves in this position. The temptation as we read through this parable is to think that we can judge who is the good soil and who is not. That is, we think we know, or at least we have an idea of who will respond to the gospel. Now think of it this way, of what a problem this is. At this point in the book of Luke, who is the seed who fell along the path? Well, by all indications, it looks like it's the scribes and Pharisees. You know, the very ones the Jewish people would have expected to be the good soil. They knew the word of God the best and were the ones most committed to orthodox belief and practice. And yet, they're the ones most opposed to Jesus and John the Baptist before him. Again, at this point in Luke, who is the seed that fell on the good soil? It's tax collectors like Matthew or the notorious woman who anointed Jesus' feet. I mean, the sort of people we would never assume would respond to the gospel, and yet here they are. Here they are. So often we think we know who the good soil actually is, and we we make those judgments based on superficial morality, like the seed cast among thorns that has the look in the field to Christianity but never really produces fruit. Or the statements of faith that come from mountaintop youth group moments of excitement and emotivism 
that initially sound like faith, but are ultimately rootless, like the seed cast on the rock. Even then, though, we do well not to rush to judgment on whether what appears to be fruit is actually fruit, because that immature fruit may very well develop into mature fruit. And that person who raised their hand to accept Jesus may very well have come to faith, though it may not look like it for a long time. Only God knows the heart, and only God can rightly judge the conscience. And it's that last line of Jesus' parable that I think really gets at this. The seed that fell upon the good soil bears fruit with patience. Of course, patience is a fruit of the Spirit, but it seems to me that what Jesus taught as a whole on the Sermon on the Plains, and again, you can see this in the Sermon on the Mount too, that if his disciples hold fast to him and learn to walk in his ways, which, by the way, takes a long time, that this will bear fruit over the long haul. Or as Eugene Peterson put it, our lives will come to be a long obedience in the same direction. So as we we see here with the initial crop of the city of God, it's hard to tell who will respond to the word of God. It's sometimes hard to tell which confessions of faith are genuine and which ones are rootless. It's sometimes hard to tell which actions are genuine fruit and which are just superficial morality and which fruit will grow into maturity and which ones will wither on the vine. And thankfully, it is not our kingdom to grow. It's just not. Or to judge for that matter. It is God's alone. And he has done and will continue to grow his kingdom, his people through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, until he is done growing it. That may be today. That may be 100 years from now. Could be 10,000 years from now. We don't know. But it's his kingdom and he will grow it. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everyone here, and I thank you for the promise that your word does not return empty, that it does just what it says it will do, that it will produce a crop. And so, Lord, I pray that for us here, that this fruit um, will be built in us through your spirit, that we would be united to your son, that his word would grow in our hearts and minds, just like we can't always tell in a garden, but it will grow to maturity. And as you have promised, already we see how this great kingdom has come to cover the earth. We thank you for the grace that we enjoy of being part of that kingdom. We thank you that we know you, that you reached out in love to us first. And we pray now as we end our time together that as we go out, we will walk in your ways and you will continue to grow us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.